0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. Well, Deuteronomy chapter 6, if you have your Bibles. And again, we've been walking through uh, this concept about idols and idolatry, and I know we haven't quite gotten there yet. (laughs) That's coming. Uh, But we've been working through the Shema of Deuteronomy chapter 6, and again, just laying a foundation for where or what we are called to as believers and the fact that we are called to love our God with this exclusive devotion and this totality of living and life and all that, on all that, what that means. Uh, what I'd like to do is just, again, just read Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, verse 4 and 5, the Shema, and just have it before us this morning. And uh, this, is, this is what Moses says. He says, here, Shema, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one and you shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might and again this is a little bit of a review but the heart of what Moses is talking about to the people of Israel is that there is an exclusivity of devotion that there is a total commitment there is an obsession there is a all out all in aggressive pursuit of the one God that we serve and that we love And Moses says that we are to love him, which again is a covenantal, there's an emotion side of this, but it's a covenantal, it's a decision of the will to say, I am going to choose, regardless of how I feel, I'm going to love God with everything. And then he goes into three aspects, and he says you're to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your might. And last time we were looking at this idea of loving God with all of your heart, and Again, the emphasis of of the heart in the Hebrew mind is is not just your blood-pumping organ. Uh, It's not just even your affections or your desires. When we talk about the heart, strangely, we're talking about your mind. We're talking about your will, your emotions, your intentions, your desires. All of that is a part of the Hebrew idea of heart. So, everyone tracking so far? So (laughs) Paul—Paul, I'm so used to Ephesians— Moses, which is totally different than Paul, Moses, Moses that's so funny to me, uh, Moses is declaring that you are to love God with all of your heart, mind, emotions, will, desires, affections, that whole center and essence, the core of your being, is to be wrapped up in loving, loving God. What I want to talk about uh, today is the word soul. Now I have to, um, I have to declare that this is probably the hardest, one of the hardest concepts I've had to wrestle through, uh, just in my own Bible study. This, and I almost skipped it or pushed it off and said, "We'll do something else so I can keep studying it." Uh, it is so simple and yet it is so overwhelmingly complex. And I think the reason it's, it's not complex, like confusing, it's complex because our modern conception of what a soul is, is not this. So I don't know what you're dragging in to this idea when you hear the word soul, but it's probably not this. And so I would like all of us just to, would you, could we just be open to the word of God this morning and say, all right, uh, no matter what I've been told, I, I'm willing to submit myself to the authority of the word of God. And this has been pressing my life. I'm actually so excited about this concept. And yet it is so different than how I've always processed. Uh, I, don't, I don't know if you've ever seen this movie. I'm not a, I, I don't want to do a lot of movie quotes purposely. Uh, but there's a great line in The Prince's Bride. <laughs> and, and I'm not even recommending the movie, just for clarity's sake. But there is a, a great line, and if, 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 you, if, you, if you don't know the story, uh, basically there are some bad guys, and one of them has this propensity to keep saying, inconceivable. But there's this wonderful moment when Enigo Montoya looks at him, and he makes this statement. You keep using that word, and I do not think it means what you think it means. I actually would say the same thing about the word soul. We keep, I think, and especially our modern concept, we keep using the word soul, but I don't think it means what we think it means. And this has been a challenge for me because as I've been working through this, I'm like, ah, uh, uh, what, what do I do with this? In fact, I had a delightful conversation with Ryan last night going, okay, could you, could you just help me process this through because this is what I want to say and this is not going to sound well. And so so Ryan helped fix all my problems. So if it doesn't make any sense, blame him. (laughs) We have a modern understanding of the soul. And it's not that it's wrong, not that it's evil. It's just it's gotten off track of the Hebrew idea. Uh, When you hear the word soul, my guess is it's somewhat similar to how I've heard the word soul. Uh, I I always perceive the soul as, or what I was told, is that our soul is our mind, will, and emotions. Have you ever heard that before? Uh, that, that it's the essence of who I am. It's, it's, the, it, it's what makes us unique. Uh, it's, it's, it's that kind of idea. It's that non-physical part of us that in eternity, it's, it's like that uh, it, when you die, your, your soul lives on. Haven't you heard all this kind of stuff before? And so it's that immaterial part of us that endures forever. And it's interesting, when you actually look at where we got that concept, there there are a few passages in Scripture that allude to this idea, but mostly it comes from a Greek philosophy that came out of Plato and Aristotle. And when you look back at the Greeks, the the Greek philosophy concept was that the highest value or the highest virtue or the highest thing was your mind. right? Is the whole psyche idea. In fact, the physical flesh was just kind of we had to put up with the physical flesh until we could get to death so that our mind could go on forever. And and there was this idea of this immortality of the quote-unquote soul of this mind, will, and emotions that would endure forever. And somehow that has seeped into the church and we have this weird Greek philosophy when it comes to this idea of soul. Everyone okay? Some of you look concerned already. So, the challenge then is that when we use the word soul, we're coming at it typically from a, a Greek philosophical concept rather than saying, what does the word of God actually say about the word soul? And this is a, and again, I admit, I admit this, but it is a very difficult, in one sense, un, uh, concept to understand, not because it's hard, but it's because we've been so influenced by the cultural understanding of this, that we just read into Scripture rather than letting Scripture speak for itself. Does that make sense? In other words, we're told this is what a soul is, so then we come to Scripture, and every time we see the word soul, we go, oh, I know what that means. And I'm I'm guilty of this, because every time I've seen the word soul, I go, oh, I know what that is, mind, will, and emotions, because that's what what I've always been told. And so I have read into Scripture what I've always been told. Again, not that it's evil, not that it's totally off base, but that's not the full understanding of this. And as, as we've been teaching you guys, when you study the Word of God, <clears throat> we cannot come to the Word of God with our preconceived notions, our prepos- or prepositions, our pre- presuppositions. Thank you. <laughs> it's like that wasn't the word. Presuppositions. That, and it's not that our theology is evil and not that our denominations are, are wrong. But, but you realize you cannot take that and force fit scripture through your doctrinal lens. You need to submit your doctrine and your theology under the word of God and say, God, would you shape my theology and my doctrine? Even if it kind of changes what I've always perceived up to this point. And that's a challenge for a lot of us. I, I was looking, because I was wrestling and struggling through this idea, uh, I, I looked up this concept and I think, over forty different commentaries, because I'm just I wanted to see what the commentators said, and it's interesting. About a third of the scholars glossed over all this, like they in terms of the Shema, they just said, uh, "Yes, we are to love God with our our heart, our soul, and our mind." Amen. Let's go on, and they just they just like skim over it. Uh, there's about a third of the scholars that <clears throat> come at it from that Greek philosophical vantage point and interpret it as the mind, will, and the emotions. And there's only about a third of the commentaries that I could even find that had a Hebraic mindset of what would Moses and the Israelites actually understood in their culture when he talked about the word soul. So all that being said is there's some difficulty in this. Ironically, when the King James was being written, this is at least what I could figure out, when the King James was being written, King James, the way King James would actually translate this word as soul it didn't just mean the immaterial part of you that lived forever, as we're going to get into this. It actually is—it's actually a part of your physical. Like your physical is a part of this, and the King James actually has that idea in a lot of the lot of the ways that it interpreted it. In fact, supposedly what I could discover is that up until that point, soul had that Greek philosophical idea—it's the floating spirit idea—but then the King James came around and actually gave concreteness to the soul, where it actually didn't just mean this immaterial thing, but actually included your body. And then strangely, over the last 500 years, we have gone away from that and gone back to this "woo" soul thing, except in one area, which is anytime you're on an airplane or a ship or some other means of transportation, and if an airplane goes down or a ship sinks, they say, oh, there were 300 souls on board. Have you ever heard that term? Right? The Titanic sank. We lost this many souls. And they're, and they're not talking spiritual language. It's using actually what the King James referenced the soul as, which is persons. Isn't this weird? All right, so all that being said, I know this is a little pressing all of our preconceived notions and our cultural understandings of this word, but I want to look at what, what was the Hebrew idea of the word soul. And be willing just to be pushed around a little bit, because you probably will be, because <laughs> I've, been, I've been pushed around on this. The word soul in Hebrew is the Hebrew word nefesh. And it's interesting, when, when you look at the word nefesh throughout the Old Testament, uh, nefesh shows up over 700 times. It's actually a rather popular word in the Old Testament. And of the 700 times it shows up, there's roughly 20 different English words that this word is translated into. So we have one Hebrew word and we have about 20 English words trying to give nuance to the Hebrew word. Some of those uh, is life. That's the most popular one, most English translations. Soul, person, mind, heart, creature, body, dead, (laughs) like a corpse, a will and desire. Now I read that list and I'm like, those are not the same. And I know this isn't Sesame Street, but if you put all those on on a board, I would go, there's not a lot of similarities between desire, corpse, soul. I mean, it just it feels doesn't this feel awkward? I I don't know about you, I've been I've been wrestling for this for about two weeks and praying, (laughs) going, Lord, I am just I feel awkward walking into this, because I've always been told this is what a soul is, and yet I'm realizing there's a lot more nuance to this idea than I thought there was. The word nefesh, in its most basic literal definition, actually means throat. It means neck. Now what's interesting is that there is a Hebrew word for neck, and there is a Hebrew word for throat, but nefesh is kind of like the totality of all that. In fact, actually, when you get to the heart of the word nephesh, it actually has this idea of breath. But there's another word for breath. But this, it's, a, it's this idea that when you breathe in, it goes into your neck, it goes into your throat. When you eat, it goes through your throat, and therefore, everything that goes through your throat, in and out of your throat, it's this life principle idea. Okay, let me give you a few verses. Numbers 11. <clears throat> It says, uh, this is, the Israelites are complaining to Moses, and they say, we remember the fish, which we used to eat for free in Egypt, the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic, which most of that does not sound appeasing to me. But they said, but now our appetite, nefesh, is gone. There is nothing at all to look at except this manna. So if you come in and looking at the word nefesh, and you think soul, ooh, this is a really weird passage. Because it's, it doesn't mean this disembodied spiritual ooh, soul thing. What is it talking about? It's, it's talking about the fact that, that oh, we, are, we are hungry, and I feel it right there. There's a burn in my throat. In, in fact, the King James translates this, but now our soul is dried away. And there is nothing at all besides this manna before our eyes. What is it actually talking about? It's the fact that we are starving. And we are, our desire, we have all this manna. We are craving something more than the manna. We are hungry. Our throats need something more than manna. Isn't that interesting? Psalm 105 says this. Uh, speaking about Joseph, when the, when the brothers sold Joseph into slavery, it said that he has sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters. His nephesh was put in a collar of iron. It's not talking about this soul. It's talking about the fact that they put chains on his hands and his feet and they put a chain around his neck. There was a collar of iron on his nephesh, his neck, his throat. And they dragged him away off into Egypt. Or Psalm 42 is a really popular concept or a verse when it comes to the idea of soul. But, but listen, listen, to the, listen to the imagery. As a deer pants for the water brooks, so my nephesh pants for you, O God. My nephesh thirsts for God, for the living God. Whom shall I come and appear before God? And, and I know you could say, well, there, there, it's that spiritual part of us that just craves God. That's true. But you need to start understanding that the word nephesh has to do with this totality of an individual, so here, here's the idea. It originally started, or the, or the most basic understanding is the idea of throat or neck. And because, again, the air comes in and out, because the food comes in and out of my throat, it eventually became to mean this idea of a creature or a life or a living being or physical, the physical existence of a person. And it's interesting that it is your neck that is the holding up. I mean, that's maybe not a good... It's the central thing that holds or the thing that connects your head and your central organs. In other words, this is actually the very center of who you are in terms of life. Why? Because you have your head, and then you have your heart and all of your organ stuff. And so the concept in a Hebrew mind wasn't just the immaterial, it was the physical associated with that. Just hang on. So there's two aspects to all this. There's the immaterial aspect of the soul. In other words, when you look at the word nephesh, there is an immaterial reality of this. It's the desires, the heart, the passions, longings, that kind of stuff. For example, Jeremiah forty four fourteen, 14. And Jeremiah writes, he says, So there were, will be no refugees or survivors for the remnant of Judah who had entered the land of Egypt to reside there and then return to the land of Judah, to which they are longing, nepheshing, to return and live. Isn't that weird? That there's this overwhelming nephesh. There's this overwhelming desire. There's overwhelming craving to return. Well, that's not physical. That's, that's the inside stuff. Or, or you look at Deuteronomy 24. And it says, You shall give him wages on that day before the sun sets, for he is poor and has set his nephesh on it. Here's this poor guy. He needs his money. So at the end of the day, make sure, you, make sure you pay him his wages. Why? Because his nefesh is set on it. His, his heart is just, oh, I need that money. It's the inside stuff. Or, or you look at Exodus 15, 9. It says, the enemy said, I will pursue and I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My nefesh shall be gratified against them. And I will draw up my sword and my hand will destroy them. So again, there's this inside heart, passion, will, emotion doesn't that sound like what we just talked about in terms of the heart? And so there is an overlap. And in fact, a lot of scholars say that. That, there's, that there is distinction between the heart and the soul, but there is some overlap. Because when we, when we use the word nefesh, some of that heart stuff shows up, which is going to make sense in just a second. But it's not just the immaterial, it's also the material, quote-unquote, soul, that when we use the word nephesh, it's talking about that material aspect of life that can be physically touched, felt, and measured. And this is what just uh, makes me uncomfortable. Because this is not how how I was taught what the soul is. I was taught I have a physical flesh, and then I have a soul inside. But the Hebrew idea is I am a soul. That this, my physical flesh, With the inside stuff, that's my soul. And you can't separate the physical from the non-physical because all of that is my soul. For example, Leviticus 21, it says, nor shall he approach any dead nephesh, nor defile himself. Excuse me. If it's only the inside stuff, your mind, will, and emotions— Well, that endures. So how how could you go up and touch a dead nephesh? It's talking about a physical body. Isn't this uncomfortable? (laughs) This is awesome. (laughs) I've already worked through this, so you've got to now deal with it. Uh, Job 41.21. Get this. His nephesh kindles coals. His breath. What is it talking about? He's standing over coals going... And he spits into the coals, or at least that's what I was doing, (laughs) right? He was, he was breathing into the coals to, to to stir them up. It's a physical kind of a a concept. Haggai 2.13, then Haggai said, if any, if someone who was unclean by contact with a dead nephesh touches any of these, does it become unclean? And the priest answered and said, yes, it becomes unclean. He's talking about a physical body. But it's the word nephesh. Exodus 21, 23. But if there is any further in, uh, injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty nefesh for nefesh. Remember eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, nefesh for nefesh. What's it talking about? Life. You. Person for person is the idea. Proverbs 27, 7. Nefesh, who is full, loves honey. But to Nefesh, who is hungry, everything bitter is sweet. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. Yes, it does. If you are full of food, then even the sweetest stuff, you're like, eh, I'm good. Haven't you ever been in a restaurant and you've been so packed full of the good food that the waiter comes over and says, would you like dessert? And you're like, oh, yes, but no. Well, why do you say no to dessert? That's the good stuff. It's because I'm full. Correct. So when you are physically full, you don't desire the sweet stuff. But if you are starving, even the bitter, nasty leeks and onions and garlic stuff, the cucumbers and melons, just kidding, sound enticing. Why? Because you are starving. But it's physical. Are you getting this? Uh, Interesting, if you're a murderer in the Old Testament... Uh, what the phrase actually is, is that you are a slayer of nephesh, or that you seek the nephesh. For example, in Genesis 37, 21, it says, when Reuben heard this and rescued Joseph out of their hands, speaking about the brothers, he said, let us not take his nephesh. The word take means to strike, to slay, or to kill. Uh, Or this idea in 1 Samuel 20, 20, verse 1, David is running from King Saul, and David looks at Jonathan and he says, well, what have I done? What is my uh, iniquity? And what sin is before your father that he is seeking my nephesh? And so if you're a murderer, if you're, if, you're, if you're trying to kill someone, you're trying to take their nephesh. Uh, if you're a kidnapper, then the idea is that you're trying to steal their nephesh. In other words, like Deuteronomy 24, verse 7, it says, if any man is caught stealing nefesh." is actually actually the literal understanding of that, which we translate kidnapping. So here, are you getting this? So if you're going to take someone physically, you're stealing their nefesh. Which is, yeah, their inside stuff, but it's more than just the inside. It's the the material, physical, touch, handle kind of parts of them. Now here's where it's going to get, if this wasn't awkward already, here's where it starts getting awkward. Uh, this, is, this is what I had to rustle through. This, this is, oh, I did not like this idea. I think it's beautiful at this point. But this is awkward. Because, I've, again, I've come at it with a wrong sense or a, a not a full sense of a soul. The first time the word nephesh shows up is in the creation account. And this is what it says. Uh, Genesis 1, verse 20. Then God said, Let the waters teem with swarms of living nephesh. And let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea monsters and every living nephesh that moves, with which the waters swarm after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. And then we are told in the creation account that the Lord God formed man out of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living nephesh. Now, in the King James, it's interesting. It translates living creatures, and then man became a living soul. But in Hebrew, it's the exact same phrase. God creates the living nefesh, and then he creates humanity, which is a living nefesh.
1: That is so awkward.
0: And maybe this is not awkward for you. Maybe you're like, that totally makes sense to me. Here's, here's why, this is why it was uncomfortable for me. Because I was always told that what separates humans from every other animal is we have souls. Maybe you were never told that. That's what I was told. So I come into the passage then, and I cannot get out of the fact that I am a living soul. But so are all the animals. What on earth? Are you kidding me? And I'm like, I am distinct. I am different than the rest of human than the rest of humanity too, but <laughs> but I am different from the rest of the creation. And there is a biblical precedent for that. That we are not like the animals. So then what here's the question. Isn't the soul what separates us from the animals? No. And that just that, ugh, that just does I that does not sit well with me because that's what I've always been told. So again, as a good student of the Bible, and I'm walking through this just like you're walking through this, as a good student of the Bible, do you realize that I cannot take my what I've always been told or what culture says is is this, and then force fit that into scripture and make scripture mean what I want it to mean. And scripture is difficult, folks. This is not a kids' book. That there is complexity in this, and there are things that are confusing, and there are things that are challenging, and there's things that you've got to think through. And and this is this is for, yes, it's for children, but this is for grown-up, mature believers, because this there there are not this there's not just easy solutions in this. There's a lot of complexity. So what does separate us from the animals? Isn't that a, a weird thought now? It's like, well, if I'm a living nephesh and they're living nephesh, we're all living nepheshes, Or whatever the plural of nephesh is. Nephishim? Nephishai? I, I don't know. You do realize there is, a, there is a distinct difference, even in those two passages. And you, you could simply just say that the big difference between humanity and the rest of creation is the fact that when God created the living nefesh, he spoke it. But when he created the living nefesh of humanity, he breathed into it. And that is totally different. And that there is this breath, there is this, there is a, if I can use our other term, it's a heart. Humanity has Heart which isn't your blood pumping organ because animals have that. But if we're talking about the Hebrew idea of the heart, it's your mind, will, and emotions, desires, intentions. Animals don't have that. They have brains. But do you realize what sets us apart is the breath. It's the heart stuff, the inside stuff. You're going to have to wrestle through this. Uh, Let me just give you a few awkward passages since we're on this topic anyway. Job 34.15 talks about the fact that all flesh, and actually a literal translation would be meat, (laughs) which is not a great way to talk about ourselves, but all flesh, speaking of animals and humanity, will perish together and man will return to dust. Or Ecclesiastes 12.7, 7, then dust will return to the earth as it was, and the spirit, literally breath will return to God who gave it. But do you realize that we, there is a similarity to us and the animals? We are all living nefesh. We're living souls. But there is something distinct that sets us apart. Well, what is it? It's that breathy stuff. It's the fact that we have been created in the image of God. It's the fact that we actually have heart. Not Heart as we've been talking about in the last session, it's, it's that mind, will, emotions, affections, desires, intention stuff. Which is what I've always called the soul. So get this idea. See, see if this makes sense. Moses says you're to love God with all of your heart, your mind, your will, your affections, your emotions, all that kind of stuff, the inside stuff. But then he says you're also to love God with all of your nephesh, which isn't just a soul, meaning the inside stuff, it's talking about the totality of who you are. And the totality of who you are is not just immaterial. Folks, you are physical. And the physical is not bad. And the physical is not going away. It's going to die. But do you realize, we are told in eternity, you get a new one. And for all eternity, think about this, for all eternity, you are going to be physical. You should be jumping up and down and getting excited. You, you will have a digestive system. That's incredible! I'm sure nothing will have calories. I mean, that will be part of the new body thing, too. Uh Surely. I mean, surely God will fix that issue. Uh, Just kidding. We have no idea. But but do you realize God made you physical? There's nothing wrong with the physical. And part of you being a nephesh is the fact that you're physical. That's exciting. So you cannot look at your flesh and say, I cannot wait to get out of this body. What are you talking about? You have a weird conception. That's not heaven, folks. We we're going to have a new heavens and a new earth, and you're going to be physical. And this whole thing, you, are, you cannot separate yourself from being physical because you're physical. You are a living nefesh, which is part of the physical stuff. And your physical is so intertwined with your non-physical, that's who you are. So it is your heart, your mind, will, your emotions, intentions, desires, somehow tied into your physical. Now, you may not like your physical, but you're stuck with your physical. And you get a new one. Praise the Lord. But you're still going to be stuck with the physical. You're not going to be floating up in heaven somewhere, playing harps and eternal shuffleboard. You're not going to be some disembodied spirit. That's an old Greek philosophy that you don't see in Scripture. In fact, Paul Paul is so excited about the physical in 1 Corinthians, 13, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, just, let me just read you one. The whole chapter is amazing on this concept, Talk, talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But let me just give you a little section. Paul gets so excited about the physical because he realizes you are a living nephesh. And you have a physical body. And Again, nephesh meaning the totality of who you are. It's the fullness of your life. In fact, again, the most common way that we're nephesh is translated is life or person, that you have a life. How do you have life outside of your physical? You, this is tied into that, folks. And yes, at some point your physical body is going to die. I get that. Praise the Lord. But we have a great hope because you get a new one. And there's going to be a resurrection. So you don't lose life because you have eternal life. But you realize that in eternity you you get a new body. Are you tracking with us? Some of you look confused. Paul says this is a great hope. Let me redo this. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul says, For if the dead are not raised, well then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. So do you hear that? He says, if there's no resurrection, then Jesus wouldn't have been raised from the dead. And if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, well then what we have is hope. It's worthless because there is no salvation without the life of Jesus being raised from the dead. You tracking so far? So Paul says, wow, could you imagine this? There is resurrection life because we see it in Jesus. And again, if he wasn't raised, everything we have is worthless because we're still in our sins. But then he goes on, on the speaking of resurrection, he says, then those also who have fallen asleep, who have died, in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only— We are, of all men, most to be pitied. In other words, our hope is not just in this world, folks. Our hope is not just right now. He goes on and says, But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. For since by man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Do you hear what he's saying? He's saying there is hey, there's resurrection, and that's a great hope for you because Jesus was raised from the dead. But do you realize if Jesus was raised from the dead, we're not just living for now, folks. There is a great hope coming. Why? Because we, too, are going to be raised into the newness of life. And you get a brand, if I can use the Hebrew word, you get a brand new nephesh. Woo! Is it going to look the same? I hope not. but my guess is you'd be able to recognize me. And there's something about caring for our bodies now on this side of eternity. Because this is a part of who I am. I don't put up with my flesh. This isn't just merely a house that I'm, I'm actually living in. I'm like, all right, if we can just finally move up and upgrade to a brand new house, that'd be great. See, that's, that's not biblical, folks. This is a part of who I, this is a part of my life. And yes, I have eternal life. That's true. And I'm going to continue forever. But there is a great hope that there is a resurrection of this. And I get a new body. It's going to be physical. Isn't this awkward? But this is exciting. Okay, maybe I'm the only one who is excited. But this is exciting. I know this is pressing against a lot of our misconceptions. So what is a soul? Let me give you three quick quotes from some scholars I think that'll just help us. Again, when we're talking about soul, I want you to grab a hold of this idea the Hebrew mind is that it's the living, breathing, physical being, but it's the totality of who you are. Yes, it includes your mind, will, and emotions. There is an aspect of that. But it's also your physical. It's the totality of your life. It is your life. So One scholar said it this way. He said, soul, Hebrew nefesh, does not mean the immortal part of personality that survives death, but rather is the principle of life shared by humans and animals, this living nefesh. By stages, the word meant neck, breath, principle of human life, human being, and strangely, even a corpse can on occasion be described as a nefesh. Another scholar said the soul is better translated as life or self. This included the whole inner self with all of its emotions, desires, and personality character. And I think I like this one the best. Uh, Daniel Bloch says this. He says, The basic meaning of nefesh is breath, though it can be used more concretely of the throat or the neck through which the breath is inhaled. However, the word is usually used in a series of derived metaphorical senses of appetite and desire, life, and ultimately a person as a living being or the whole self. Here, the word refers to one's entire been. Here's the idea. You do not have a soul, a nefesh. You are a nefesh. So if you take this idea that, again, yes, it's the inside stuff, but it's more than just the inside heart kind of stuff. This is the totality of who you are. And if you take that idea, do you realize how brilliant that is in the Shema? Moses is talking about the fact that there is this exclusivity of devotion that we are to have to God, that he has to have our total commitment and love. And Moses says that you are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, which is your mind, your will, your emotions, your affections, your desires. And then he expands that out and goes, not just your heart, but the totality of who you are. You are to love him with all of your life so if you just need a visual, it's this idea of an ever-expanding devotion to God. In the Greek philosophical idea, the, the heart, the soul, and your mind or your strength would be three separate pieces. But the Hebrew idea is actually they're all tied in together. And so it's actually better to think of it as like concentric circles. that they just There's all these circles inside of each other. And so the idea is that is at the center you have the heart. Again, you have your mind, will, emotions, intentions, desire stuff. But Moses says, don't just love God with the inside stuff. You are to love him with the nefesh, the totality of your life, the physical, the spiritual, the emotional, the desires, the mind, the everything that's happening in your life should be aimed in one direction, an obsession toward God himself. Now, Next time, we're going to talk about might or strength. And you'll never guess, but it's probably not, ex- not at all what you're thinking it is. And that's been so exciting for me in this Shamak series, or this little mini series in this bigger series, is because I've come in with a perceived notion of, what oh, I know what a heart is. Oh, I know what a soul is. Oh, I know what my strength and might is. And it seems like God is just turning my world upside down. And it's not that I was wrong. It's just there's a whole deeper, richer understanding of this. Does God have your heart? Do you genuinely love God with all of your heart? Your mind, will, and emotions, affections, desires, intentions? Do you genuinely love God with all of your life, including your physical limitations, and that was an interesting thought as I, was, I woke up this morning extra early and just laying in bed and was just praying. And I just said, you realize that if I was to love God with all of my life, which includes my physical, that means I have to love him even with the physical limitations of my life. I, I can't do everything. Now, I can do things that other people can't, but there's a lot of things that people can do that I can't. And, and there's people in our, our world that are dealing with serious health issues. And we have people who may be handicapped and we, we may have people in our world that we have. But do you realize that any of those things are not excuses for you not loving God with all of your life? And that you're even called to love God in the midst of those limitations. Just an interesting thought, isn't it? That the totality of my life, every aspect of my life, Every aspect of my physical, every aspect of my inside stuff, my heart, all of that is to be given into devotion to Jesus Christ. Can you genuinely say that? Psalm 103 verse 1 says this, Bless the Lord, O my nefesh, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. It is all that is within you. Everything in you is to bless his name. The totality of your life is to go after Jesus. Or if I may read Psalm 42 again, as a deer longs for streams of water, so I long for you, O God. I thirst for God, for the living God. Is that true? Are you willing to pursue him with everything? Not not just the Inside stuff, but everything. All that you are is to be given unto him. Let's pray. Lord, I know that this uh, presses some of our presumptions and our notions and understandings. But Lord, I just love the thought that I don't have a soul that's just residing in a physical vessel. I am, a, I am a soul. I am a living nefesh. And that the entirety of my nefesh is to be given unto you. Lord, what would it mean for me to truly love you with all of my heart? What would it actually mean practically if I was to love you with all of my life? The every waking moments, the every-sleeping moments, the physical resource, the physical limitations, the mind, the will, the emotions. Lord, what if all of that was given in pursuit of loving you? And as Moses reminded the Israelites, hey, this was to be at the front of our focus, that this was the thing that we were to say every morning, every night. We were, we were never to forget this reality that you are to be the focus, the center, the obsession, of our souls. Lord, would you make that a reality? Could could you get so big in our hearts and our minds, our very beings, that, that we don't just give you a piece of us, we don't just give aspects of our life to you, but we give the totality, the fullness of our life to you. Lord, I am so convinced that if I would love you with everything that I am, that would change everything in my life. But Lord, the only way I can pull that off is I need you in my life. I need you to somehow give me such an overwhelming vision of who you are. And through your spirit, would you enable me? Would you somehow be able to kick this thing to another level? Would you somehow give me an increasing heart and passion and obsession for you, the one true God? And may this world once again know who you are, because they see you in the obsession of my life. You living your life in the midst of my own. Lord, so take my heart. Take my life. Let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Love you, Jesus. Just give you all the praise and all the glory in your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen.